0: Hey, hi! Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and welcome to the show. My guest this week is Aaron Hillis, who runs Video Free Brooklyn, one of New York's last surviving video stores. Aaron is also a journalist and filmmaker, prepping his feature debut. And the podcast he started a couple of years ago to promote The Shop, DVD is the New Final, was one of a handful of shows that made me think I could pull off this project. Come to think of it, fans of Aaron's podcast might notice that this episode shares its signature sound design because we recorded it in the store. Let's call it an homage. Aaron picked Ishtar, Elaine May's 1987 comedy... Starring Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman as two terrible singer-songwriters who take a gig in a North African war zone and wind up as pawns in a CIA scheme to remake the entire Middle East. As you do. It was wildly over budget, and it took forever to come out, and critics and audiences were openly contemptuous of it when it did arrive at the tail end of the Reagan era. But now? Well, as Aaron explains, May's satire, songs and all, was just slightly ahead of its time. This is someone else's movie.
1: You notice I didn't even hesitate when you said pick no, uh, a movie. I was like, well, we're talking about Ishtar.
0: Yeah, and I responded, awesome. <laughs> uh, because it is a movie that is sort of unfairly synonymous with failure and disaster. And, sure. And, and it was the film that Well, was it was.
1: I mean, it, what's what's what's, talk, what's let's get the facts out of the way here. Mm. Uh, Elaine May's Ishtar it was her last... Third, directorial? Thir- yeah, the last last thing she's ever directed was her th- fourth fourth movie, I guess, right? I think so. She did four. Let's, let's think about new this. Leaf. A New Leaf. Heartbreak Kid, right. Mikey and Mikey Nikki. And that's it. That's it. Yeah. This is the the fourth and fourth and last film. Uh, amazing. Um, yeah, and it was. It was. It was a huge bomb. The movie cost over fifty million dollars, and you know, let alone any marketing costs since yeah. it was uh, starring Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty yeah. to two huge stars uh, at the time, and uh, well, wasn't still, that,
0: I guess, but yeah, wasn't that the the first bone of contention? Was that it? The, the, the the starting budget, I think was $18 million. Was it simply $6 million for each of them? For, yeah, oh, that's May, right. For Hoffman, and Beatty. Right. Going forward. It was, this is the thing that happened to the cable guy, right? Where Apatow and Stiller, mostly Stiller at the time, got out ahead of it by saying, yeah, 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 we're paying Jim Carrey $20 million and no one's ever done that before, but the rest of the movie is only costing $20 million. It's, it's not that big a deal. This right. is how you get people to see your weird little movie. Sure. And in 1994, or five... Six, was it? Whenever that happened. Around that time, yeah. People were ready to hear that. I mean, people knock the cable guy for being being too dark and too weird. Yeah. But it is still very much a a movie with a vision and a movie with an idea, and it kind of clicks together. I think it's the best movie Ben Stiller directed. It's. I'm inclined to agree with you. I still would have loved to see his version of uh, Simple Plan. Um, Ishtar, like the knives were out before they even started shooting. Sure. And you can feel this weird tension and all the stuff from the story you know you, you,
1: you got also realize that Elaine may was was not exactly um, under budget on her other films That's I true. mean even even her first film a new leaf which is like 71, 71. Uh, you know her first cut was over three hours long and it also went crazy over budget I mean she she had a history of doing this she was a uh, she was she was very uncompromising as a, as a, as a filmmaker much to uh, studio chagrin and, but Ishtar was, like, the biggest flop, and that's still, it's still considered, like, you know, one of the legendary golden yeah. turkeys. But the thing is, so many movies that have been flops deserve to be flops, and Ishtar is, in my mind, one of the great, com- capital G, great comedies of the 1980s. Yeah. I think the first 20 minutes alone is, is funnier than anything else uh, that's that took place in the 80s. Sorry, mm-hmm. Albert Brooks, but, um, you know, it's it's... It's tremendous. It's I I rewatch it at least once a year.
0: Okay. Well it's not a competition. Uh Albert Brooks can have his little you know Oh no, no, it's don't get me wrong. wrong. I love
1: I love Albert Brooks. I'm just saying I like just want to get I, I have to I have to go to bat here for this movie because <laughs> sure, of you know, it's not it's not that perverse that I feel this strongly about it. It's just that the the common perception is this is this is a terrible movie because because it did so you know, because yeah. it was such a financial fiasco.
0: Yeah, and no, the idea that everyone hated it before it opened, therefore it must be bad, is something that I don't fully understand. I mean, box office, as I keep telling people uh, who who think that the Transformers movies are good, box office is not an indication of quality, it's simply no, an indication of, of not. interest. Right. And when Ishtar opened, no one went. So that was the indication. Nobody wanted to see it. That doesn't mean it was bad. And yeah. So many films that don't perform yeah. have merit beyond... Their financial standing, or they're listing in, yeah. the, in Variety. What's going on right now? You're watching it over my shoulder. <laughs>
1: no, yeah, we we have uh, we have Ishtar on. Where we're right now in in my shop, video free Brooklyn, and uh, Ishtar's in the background uh, on mute with the subtitles on. I just I get so caught up in the dialogue. It's they're so funny together. Yeah. Um. You know, I, I don't know if anybody's listening to this. Uh, if, if you you have no idea what we're what we're talking about. <laughs> if you just you just heard about this movie that's really bad. But Ishtar is. Oh man, I, yeah. I, I get such a kick out of this movie. So it's uh, it stars yeah. du- Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty uh, are a singer songwriter duo. They're like a they're like a third rate, just a, just an absolutely buffoonish uh, knockoff of Simon and Garfunkel. They they really you know they're early on they're 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 standing outside a record store and they they see the like Simon Garfunkel's like greatest hits or something and they're like you know what what, what are these guys got that, yeah. that we don't. And Paul Williams actually wrote all the music uh for the movie. so much of it's not even in the movie there's there's like a little montage where you see them like uh like writing together and you yeah workshoping yeah. their songs and they you only get a, you only get a chance to hear like you know a couple lines of their their like uh, you know really, really like yeah. like wardrobe of love crappy songs about Just. like software and lawnmowers <laughs> and uh you know even even the very beginning it's them uh uh, workshopping a song, like line by line, and they're trying to figure out. Uh, my my favorite bit in that is uh, Dustin Hoffman just saying, "Why?" And the question is, telling the truth can be dangerous business. Yes. Dangerous business. Yes. Why? Why? Why is it Why? dangerous? Yeah. Why? And then they they you know they start going this back and forth. And difficult they, problem. Yeah, yeah difficult be, problem. It can uh, be a bitter herb. Yeah. I've never I've never I've heard, heard of it. a hit song with bitter herb. The word and word. and and the lyrics are just so clunky it's 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 great it's telling the truth can be dangerous business um, happy and popular don't honest go and honest, honest, and popular, honest and popular don't, don't go, go hand in hand uh, if, if you admit you can, can play the accordion, the accordion no, no one will hire you hire in a rock and roll band.
0: band and then the next line is my favorite uh, which is but, but we, we can, can sing, sing <laughs> badly our hearts out and if we're lucky and no neighbors complain that means absolutely <laughs> that's so fantastic this means so that's good. happened to them yeah. like there's a world in the music absolutely. That we never get to really yeah. experience yeah. And, and the idea too that they are already ten years too old to be yeah. working at the at the gigs that they're working at. Right. Uh, that, that Beatty is this bizarre hick from. Well, no, that's that's, that's that's Fast the best. I lady.
1: that's like my favorite joke about the whole thing is Dustin Hoffman is uh, is nicknamed Hawk. Yes, he's the ladies' man. It's a gang. And thing. Warren Beatty is just you know talking to him. It's like I just don't know how you do it. I can't you know I can't talk to women like you can't. But it's Warren Beatty. Like yeah. you can't. It's not like he's in disguise. Like you're looking at Warren Beatty next to Dustin Hoffman. It's it's. A terrific, yeah. uh, terrific. Egg. I'm actually working on a, on a project uh, that uh, a, a film that I'm going to uh, direct and against my better judgment, co-star in. Okay. Uh, that's going to take place entirely in the country of Panama, and that's uh, that's 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 a joke that we're repeating there. That <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be the Dustin Hoffman character too. Uh, my my co-lead who is a, a rugged Hollywood actor, and uh, yes, like by pulling you into the. Larger
0: situation. Yeah. So, so um, obviously then there is there is, that'll back us up to the other question I always ask at the end, which is how this has influenced your own work, but uh, in in the moment when you're watching it, what was, actually more importantly, I guess, before we even get there, what was your first experience of it? Did you see it theatrically? Or, <sighs> I,
1: no, I didn't. I would have been too young. young.
0: It yeah. would have been,
1: um, I, w- I would have been like, like nine yeah. or ten, so, I mean, I think the movie's I don't even know what's rated because I the only the only way that was, you can get it in home media is the Amazon is Blu-ray, right? Uh, well, it's just it's just Blu-ray. I mean, you can you can buy it elsewhere. Uh, oh, it is. It's, it's a it's a director's cut, yep. but they never release this movie on DVD
0: in the United States, no. in North America. I can't say I blame them. It, just in terms of the corporate hostility towards it, it's it's one of those things sure. that are, should have surfaced and didn't. But when you, yeah, look I mean, there, before... there
1: are there are far worse movies that uh, that came out right away. It's oh, like, sure. You know, just just having the two of them and Isabella Gianni and you know Elaine May has her fans. It's shot by the great Vittorio Storaro. Yeah. Like I mean, it, it looks great. I, I don't. I I really don't understand why it it has this you know this damned reputation yeah. because you know I I guess I guess there is a bit of a cult following now um, and I know I know a few years ago like like Elaine May presented a uh, you know a, a screening of it that uh, that I heard was sold out um, five or six years ago but I just think it is such strong writing and unique I mean it, it really doesn't it doesn't look like any other film you know you start with this 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 movie about uh, about these two hapless guys who are just... So naive. I mean, they're not even they're not even buff- buffoons. But no, they're, uh, they're Elaine, really- Elaine May, I, I guess, uh, uh, one of the inspirations beyond like uh, like the the uh, Hope and Crosby Road movies was uh, Ronald Reagan. She had met Reagan, and she thought there was uh, there was something kind of both charming and dangerous about his. Naive nature, yeah. and that's and that's sort of what's what's going on with these guys. And, yeah. You know, first movie, first twenty minutes of the movie takes place in New York, and they're like trying to find gigs, and they're just getting these like just terrible, you know, n- 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 low paying. Uh, just just terrible terrible gigs and then they get and then they get uh, an offer to go to north africa to go to to morocco where they uh, love american singer songwriter duos yes exactly yeah. and they're gonna they're gonna play a hotel gig but uh but really the whole thing is that they're they're patsies in a in a, in a, a game of espionage with uh, charles groden as a as a slick cia agent who's playing them as patsies and Isabella Gianni is working with uh, with She's the rebels, sort of a
0: freedom fighter, sort
1: of a freedom fighter, uh, but uh, sort of a mysterious character who you don't know where her where her loyalties really are. And uh, no, I mean it gets it gets into something that's that's way more ambitious, and you know, and maybe maybe it, it doesn't all work, <laughs> but but it's. It's never boring, and I think that's that's one of the uh, the great things about it is you know plenty of movies that you know have shot for the stars and uh, and not quite hit it, but if they're not boring, I'm going to give them a pass. You know what I mean? I, I appreciate flawed ambition, even failed ambition, way more than I do, you know, mediocre success. Yeah,
0: I have to say the thing that I, I did see it in the theater in in eighty seven. I saw it in, a, in uh, I was visiting an uncle in. Boston, so I would have seen it in a Natick Megaplex or Miniplex at the time. I think there were four screens. And everyone had the sense. My uncle's a big Elaine May fan. Uh, my aunt wanted to see it for Beatty and Hoffman. And I had been following the press, and it's like, this isn't going to be around very long. We should see it. We should see it. We should yeah. see it right now. We should yeah. see it right now. So we saw it uh, on a Sunday or Saturday afternoon, four o'clock show, because we'd had lunch, a long lunch. Uh, it was really nice. And we rarely see them. And we went to see the movie, and it was, I'd say, two-thirds full. So I remember a fairly big theater, let's say three, 400 people. And there were some giggles, but just the blind camel joke paid off a couple of times although <laughs> yeah if you're patient with it it just doesn't stop which yeah. is fantastic yeah. but the audience didn't really know what to do i think they thought it was going to be an action movie right uh
1: because, because it does it it, it does, with, it, does, yeah. it, does be- it does begin with a uh, like a desert chase yeah there's the, no there's there's and like a full on uh yeah it's yeah. it's like it's like an action thriller but it's it's i mean even more so than like a spies like us mm-hmm. like it, it's there, there, there's rocket launchers I mean yeah. like it's it's ridiculous where that movie ends up going you know yeah. and uh, it, it's it, it is plotty but I mean it's such a shaggy kind of plot yeah. that like anything can happen you yeah. can end up with two guys alone in the desert with a blind camel whereas a rocket launcher yeah and a rocket launcher whereas you know in the beginning of the movie it's uh, two sad sacks sitting in the bar and uh, flashing back to how they became uh, a, a, a musical duo uh, yeah, no, it's 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 truly a peculiar film. I never answer your question how how I first saw it. Yeah, um, yeah a little bit. I think, I think. No, I know, I know. It was uh, I rented it. VHS? I rented it on VHS. In uh, that would have been maybe the early '90s,
0: mm-hmm.
1: early maybe mid '90s. No, I was like I was like a teenager. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't.
0: Your sensibility already more or less fully formed. You knew what you liked. You
1: no, you liked. I was, uh, I I I got into to my my film taste now is such a such bizarre. I think horror movies, what got me into foreign films, art films, documentaries. Right. Horror movies were my gateway drug because they were the first kind of movies that I was really aware of how they were being made. Right. And Same I think, for me, actually. So I think, uh, you know, my, my first movie magazine probably would have been Fangoria. But, you know, Fangoria then led to, like, you know... I, I, I wouldn't have gotten a premiere if I hadn't right. started with the, with Fangoria. And premiere is where I ended up uh, getting my start writing DVD reviews in 2002. So, yeah, no, I, 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 I definitely rented it. Uh, I could even tell you where I rented it. I rented it from a place called Video Paradise... Which I wish is still there, but uh, I have a feeling is 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 not just because
0: nothing is. It, it, yeah. It's
1: 2016, and uh, mm. like I said, we're we're sitting in one of the last oh. six video stores in New York City. It's unimaginable. Um, that place was enormous. It was in Chandler, Arizona. I grew up. In, I grew up in the suburbs just outside of Phoenix, and it was it was a supermarket. Man, it was so huge that I once got lost. Like I couldn't find the front door. <laughs> I got lost inside a video store. That's how big it was. Yeah. And that's how big they used to were. They yeah. used to be. You and kids
0: today have no idea. You kids today. Square footage. What is now, I don't even know. Like now, the the, the one I worked in that was a jumbo video at Young and or Bathurst and Steel's in Toronto, which was way, like it was literally farmland on the other side. It was the very, very, very north end of the city. Um, and I worked there for a year and a bit, and it was. A supermarket. It was. It was a huge space. Now it would be like um, I don't even know what the equivalent is, like a Home Depot, yeah. just big. And we had everything. And it was like that. That was my film school. And you could watch and and I absolutely I horror, horror films were the gateway the same way because once you start seeing what Carpenter's doing in Cronenberg, and once you figure out the use of lens flares and Carpenter and the musical stings, it's like expressionism. It's like you're discovering that, and then you move on. Or I moved on to Argento and Baba and Jalo, and it's like that's. Just it all starts rolling. And then you experience all of cinema. Yeah. Uh, no, it's true.
1: The thing is, the kids today, uh, they don't understand about these video stores. No, the thing that I think is is really is really missing and uh what what I think is really problematic and, and worries me about film culture itself is like you said, video stores were also my my film school and what I loved about Video Paradise is is they had a smoking deal. It was like Seven movies, seven days, <sighs> seven seventy-seven, or you know, five movies, five days, same thing. But because of that, there'd only be like three or four that like, ah, oh, I cannot wait to see this. But then I had another like, you know, three movies right. to to like just get stuff that appealed to me because like the bo- I could take a chance on something. Mm-hmm. You know, it was cheap enough that I can I could take a chance, and the joy of discovery was there young millennials who've had broadband their entire life yeah. they you know, they have this idea that you can just get anything and you can't. There's no joy of discovery anymore. You know, it's like people just take for granted that you can't get everything. And they just they don't they don't look for things because they assume that the moment they want to find something they just can. And it doesn't really work that way. And I feel like now, you know, so many people are are watching movies like streaming for instance you know like on yeah, Netflix yeah, yeah. well Netflix is uh, Netflix is cool for their original content and you know television they've got a lot of old television but they're letting a lot of their licensing deals lapse and they're not really they're not really caring as much about film and they have a really limited in my mind garbage selection mm-hmm. of movies I mean I we're standing in a shop that's 375 square feet and literally 85% of what's in here you cannot get on Netflix yeah but also, you can't really. They've got they've got a really haphazard search tool, and so it's more like they give you a bunch of selections and are like, "Which one of these twenty movies in this category do you want to watch?" And it's like, "Well, I don't. I don't want to watch movies like like I want to browse. I want to browse the same way I do in you know a record store or a bookstore.
0: Yeah, I'll and I really
1: in those places are also kind of." You know, uh, yeah, you know, like like dwindling as well. But I don't think they I don't think those are ever going to go away. At least not bookstores. I think I think there's there's just too much of a of a human desire to want to feel that tactile thing to be able to like pick up things, read the back, read blurbs. You're just not going to get it from a, from a one sentence log line. So you know, a movie like Ishtar that I had heard was was a stinker. I was able to take a chance on it because it's like, well, I like I like Warren Beatty and uh, and Dustin Hoffman, and this movie looks kind of weird. And there's a picture of them like uh, like trying to drag a camel through the desert. But wait, they're musicians? I don't even understand. So I was able to to watch it that way, and I didn't um, I didn't love it then like I do now. But I knew but I knew it was funny. I mean, I knew it had jokes in there that uh, were like, well, this is this is truly uh an unusual comedy enough so that it made me want to revisit it again later and you know by by i i'm sure by the time i saw it when did i see it again i think on tv i think i saw it on tv years later like on cable or something and that's that's what made me like really like fall in love with it and then when once this blu-ray came out like uh three years ago i was i was all over it because I just can't
0: believe this movie's not on DVD. And, yeah, I, oh yeah, I snapped it up the same way just because I figured... I, first, I think it was exclusive to Amazon for a while. They were doing oh, a sort it? of test run where gotcha. they really certain titles. And it's like, this is never going to be available again. I have to have this right now. And it is... It's, it's more or less... I, I don't know what the difference is from the theatrical version than the director's cut. I really didn't notice anything. And I... Almost don't want to do a deep dive just because I don't want to know exactly if it's just a replacement of shots or something. Everything sure. lands more or less the way I thought it did. It seems like it has less of a third act than it did, but I don't think it ever had a third act. They go into the desert and then basically it just rolls towards the end of the movie. It's just chaos after that. Yeah, it's
1: it's uh it's it's shaggy. I mean, it's yeah, shaggy yeah. even though there is a, there is a plot and there are players
0: and there are her- heroes and villains and different shades of uh you know where they're. And as soon as you start talking about shades, the. The thing you cannot do is ignore. The thing I feel I must do is just point out how great Charles Grodin is. Oh, Charles as, Grodin as is always great. Yeah. He is such an interesting take on that character because we're used to seeing the sleazy operator, the smarmy guy, the overconfident one. Now it would be, you know, Barry Pepper in in a white suit and sunglasses. It would be <laughs> like an instantly un- understandable type. Sure. And Grodin is gleefully open about. Being with the CIA about what he wants, he never lies to anyone. He's that's right. completely open yes. about everything, and he's perfectly willing to accommodate whatever anyone wants with on his own terms. But the pauses he takes and the way he just sort of sidles past the
1: truth—yes—is that's how he does it. He doesn't—he doesn't say the truth, but he doesn't lie. Yeah. So it's 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 very, and he does it all. You know, well, uh, well. Eating handfuls of Moroccan food. Yeah. I mean, like it's it's no, it's it's a remarkable performance. I like Jack Weston as their uh, as their agent yeah. as their as their <laughs> really bad low rent agent uh, Marty
0: Freed. Yeah, introduced wearing a scarf and a hat in his own office, which is such a great piece of shorthand. Absolutely.
1: <clears throat> no, Elaine May, I, I just does not get enough credit as uh, as a comedic. I mean, she she's brilliant. She's absolutely brilliant, and I love I love all four of her movies. Uh, I really do, and I, I I just feel like she doesn't. She just doesn't get enough credit because, you know, it's much juicier to talk about the problems behind the scenes, sure, and uh, yeah. you know, I think in the uh, I think I think Mike Nichols ends up getting far more far more attention than her. But uh, but she really she really did some great work uh, in film. It's it's a shame that she'll, she'll probably never direct yeah. again. She has been working as a script doctor for decades. Yeah, she has, and in fact, that's how she managed to rope in. Uh, Beatty and Hoffman, because she helped on both Tootsie and Reds. Red, yeah. uh, that's that's Beatty kind of owed her one. You know, yeah. he still he still got paid, but but he he owed her one. So, yeah. uh, you know, and then there are there are talks about about there being like clashes on set. I mean, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of ego for sure. Uh, you know, especially just just Alain May and Beatty alone, but all three of them have have talked about you know what fans they are of this movie I mean there are a lot of like you know big fans uh, Scorsese's a fan sure uh, of course, he, is. Of course he, is. he of course he is of course he is Tarantino's a fan Edgar Wright um, yeah I mean it may be it may be an indulgent film but uh, but I don't I don't find self-indulgent an, an inherently bad word
0: no and it's indulgent in a really pleasurable way I mean I, mean. I, I honestly think having seen it again just a couple of days ago uh, with with my wife Kate who'd never seen it. And kind of watching her respond to stuff. She loved the and the thing that I love that I've always loved about it is the way that it uses like patience. It depends on you paying not even paying attention, but just noticing repetition of certain ideas and hearing jokes come back. Some of
1: the jokes are in the margins, like the nature of this being a studio comedy, and because there is action and uh, and intrigue and international locations, yep. but some of the best jokes are not. Played big, they're played really small. So you know there are there are definitely like some broad things in there. Like for
0: instance, a blind camel mm-hmm. and the auction scene, which now plays as really uncomfortably racist. Oh yeah, it, it did really it at does. the time, which is really interesting. I think that really. was the scene. I was sort of holding this back. That was the scene that got the biggest laugh at the Boston mm-hmm. theater uh, because it's Dustin Hoffman screaming and funny and screaming funny. And now it's just like, oh Jesus Christ! Like you could not, you couldn't even shoot that. You couldn't script that. Sure. This is the like uh, ridiculous six stuff where actors would just walk off the set uh, if they were asked to. Oh, you, you need to be an Arabic person being yelled at in gibberish, and that person is going to our movie star is going to make noises that sound like what we think your language. It's just like you couldn't even package that
1: sure but it's still but it still works today because from. they're because the characters are not are not that bright yeah so it's it's like it, it, it doesn't even i don't even know if it comes off so much as racist as just it's cl- just clueless yeah. which which is you know th- th- there is a fine line between those things but uh but i, I don't think um i think they're well-intentioned guys that's that's yeah. the thing so i don't think they're they're tr- they're trying like if you had told them Guys, you can't do that. You're actually uh, you're being offensive. Yeah. I, I think they would, you know, suddenly apologize as those characters are written. Like yeah. they're
0: not, they they're not. They don't know they're transgressing. That's correct. But now I think it's just it's impossible to see that without thinking about the thought process that went into it. I mean, it, it happens a lot when you look back. Uh, we did an episode on Tootsie, in fact, and and. The sexual politics are actually still pretty sound, yes. and it looks, it feels, and looks progressive. But there are a couple of things where friends of mine have talked. You're doing Tootsie what about the what about the way Daphne Coleman treats women? It's like yeah, but the movie knows he's an asshole, right? And the movie knows these guys are morons, but they're not racist. It's just. I think now that scene couldn't exist. You just couldn't you would you would you'd you'd smother it in the crib before it even made it. Well,
1: I mean, it's it's tough. It's tough when you when you I mean, it's, you know, you, you can't
0: judging it, a film that's 30 years old with the morals of the present day. So.
1: Yeah, but but I I think that I still think there's a big difference between characters who act a certain way and the filmmaker's voice of, you know, just sure, because sure. like for instance, if a character is misogynist or racist, is the movie, you know, that's that's a right. big thing, I, you know, came up a lot with uh, with the Hateful Eight for uh, for for a recent example, mm-hmm. you know, there's some there's some really like terrible things that are so that are said about black people, uh, terrible things that are done to women, but is that Tarantino's worldview or is that the characters in a period piece where everybody is. Hateful. I mean, it's it's, it's in the title. Yeah, yeah. It's it's inclined that, that, that I mean, but part of part of what uh, what I think makes a movie interesting, and you know, I, I don't I don't love the hateful aid And this is this is a, a minor digression. But, oh, no, uh, bring it, bring it. <laughs> but uh, is is I like the idea that there are no likable characters. That that literally every character is in some way yeah. is in some way despicable. You know, and so you as an audience member have to decide where your loyalties are. Because some characters are less despicable than others, but then they still have, uh, you know, but they're all they're all people that you kind of think uh, maybe maybe deserve to
0: uh, to be punished for uh, for their less than righteous ways. Yeah, my problem with the hateful eight is more that Tarantino. All the characters sound like Tarantino now, and like that's been going on for a few movies. But he's just reached the point where I find it impossible, and I think this is what he wants. I find it impossible to distinguish the the virtuosity being expressed from the story and characters. Uh, the same thing happens with Ritu. It's just like, you know, this is me, this is my mastery, and you must submit to it. And I don't want to submit anymore. I'm kind of I'll take I'll take
1: Tarantino's movies over In your Ritu yeah, so I any, will also, any day of the week. I will also do that.
0: You know, if you buy a tripod, you don't have to nearly kill your cinematographer. It's a fun trip. It's a fun tip, pro tip. <laughs> uh, but with Ishtar, you have a director who very clearly is... Playing with conventions of espionage thrillers, and right. she's refusing. I mean, even the film itself isn't a satire; it just refuses no. to stay in one genre. That's right, and and
1: I think that's part of what what made it. Uh, you know, I think I think it's ahead of its time. Truly, I, th- I think if if that movie had come out even a decade later, even if that movie came out in the '90s, well, I just think I, think, think, I mean, think about that movie if it had come out. You know, let's bring up Tarantino. What would say it was a post uh, post Pulp Fiction uh, movie? You know, especially in an age when it was hot to just kind of rip off, you know, what what Tarantino was doing, mm-hmm. and having, uh, you know, people, you know, thugs, thugs uh, waxing philosophical, uh, self aware misadventure kind of exactly. stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Like I think I think a movie like this could have really, really shined. But in 1987, it, it's just too weird, and yeah. it wasn't small enough to have the uh, have the kind of like cult appeal of like a Repo Man. Right. That it's like all bets are off. This movie is yeah. doing whatever it wants. But Repo Man, you know, didn't cost much money, so they, there was room for it to grow. Whereas this movie, right out the gate, like it had to, it had to, uh, to make, you know, it needed to make a return on a fifty-something on a million dollar investment, and so it was just. I, I think, I think some people just saw it as a, you know, neither fish nor fowl thing. It's like what, what is this movie? It feels like it's supposed to be this broad studio action comedy, but really, it's, it's. You know, it could be a quirky, independent film. It's just, it's, it's, it's singular, man.
0: Yeah, it is. And the, the point of comparison I keep thinking of is, uh, weirdly enough, is Bob Roberts, which huh. also surfaced, made its point and left so quickly that people almost don't think it was real uh it's it's Bob Robert, Bob it Robert's was... also had more critical acclaim. Yeah, it was supported. It caught. Yeah. And it was an indie. It was a tiny little film that
1: yeah, was it was, it it was, a, it was a small a smaller yeah. film and I think I I think uh yeah, no no I I definitely I understand what you mean especially coming from you know from like a from like an auteur standpoint because that's, yeah. that's definitely something that uh was it was like it's like, a, a, it's... a filmmaker's vision of uh you know how, how this how this once you know, yeah. wants to present itself.
0: I think that with Ishtar you just it, if, even if it had been like two years later, once the Iran Contra news broke, I think people would have understood it because that's that was the thing that jumps into my head. This this view. I was even think like, about that. Nineteen eighty-seven. That wasn't just that wasn't short. It hadn't broken. Right. And yeah, it wasn't until Reagan was out of office. I think that, that that we really fully understood what was going on. Right. And so she she's predicting not the response and not the scandal, but the activity. Right. And obviously, she just. It was in the air. It was in the wind. She felt it. it right, it just for Like I said, sense. Reagan. Reagan
1: was a uh, was an inspiration. She, yeah, she had met him, and uh, and said it was it was his naivete that uh, that yeah, yeah. kind kind of informed these characters that that both both charming and dangerous. Yeah, and uh, the idea that
0: she might have seen this coming yeah. is, is even more amazing. Uh, now, see, know, Ishtar is prescient. It's wag the dog, right? That's the other the one. it's yeah. the, it's the line of uh, fiction becoming reality in the wrong way. Right. Um, and that's where like Bob Roberts ties in because it is a direct satire of something that's going on, but at the same time, it's somebody who really, really has something to say and can't quite articulate it uh, clearly enough for people. So it becomes a cult movie. So it bubbles under. Um, but Bob Roberts, absolutely bad example because it caught the wave of support and it was it was embraced. So
1: going going back to
0: to to just just kind of uh, explain. I mean, you know, there's nothing unfunnier
1: than deconstructing comedy, <laughs> but, uh, but what I love about this movie is is that. There's like broad jokes, but then the real joke is like, is like the throwaway line that comes after it. So, for instance, Isabella Jani is playing this mysterious, uh, you know, freedom fighter, mm-hmm. and she's cloaked, and the way and the and the way that she uh, meets both uh, Hoffman and Beatty for the first right. time, both of them think that she's a he. Right, a boy specifically. Specifically, a boy. Which yes, a boy. Because they hear, they hear her voice and they just mm-hmm. assume that it's a boy. That's I, I love that they're both uh, uh, oblivious in the, in the, in similar ways. And both of both times, the joke is uh, first time is that uh, she flashes her breast. Yeah. And the second time, Warren Beatty accidentally gropes her and realizes. And but when Hoffman, when when. She doesn't. She's in an airport. She doesn't have time. She's like she's she's way smarter than both of them, yeah. and which is also a great a great gag too. That like they're the heroes, but really, but really, like it should be Isabella Johnny's movie once it once it gets to Ishtar, and uh, and and she so she 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 flashes a boob, and uh, and Hoffman just says like, look what you have. Yeah, that's right. As if, as if she wouldn't know. Right. As if, because he's learning for the first time, he's like questioning her, like, like, do you know yeah. what you have? Like, it's just such a, it's it's a, like a throwaway line, but it's just such a, a layered joke of a, of of just just buffoonery. I love yeah.
0: it. And it's almost it's almost a non sequitur because what would what would what would the next line be? He never (laughs) understood where that would go but it is so funny. Uh, And with Beatty there's that whole are these breasts thing uh, that just keeps going. Yeah. He just won't uh, he grabs her there's a scuffle he grabs her uh, from behind puts his hands on her chest and then starts groping uh, asks if it could conf- and then keep the, going. Like, yeah, for the he, rest he, it, of the dialogue scene, he's still fondling right. her, right? In a really clumsy, right? He's way. not
1: he's not doing it in a in yeah. a in a skeezy way. He's doing it because he's genuinely
0: confused. Yeah, and the it's idea that brilliant. Warren Beatty, whose reputation obviously was the, as the the lady yeah. killer, uh, could do this in a way that reads as both innocent and comic, like it's in character groping, right? You don't think about it until an hour later it's yeah. like oh that's right he of course he knows what breasts like but it, it's just so odd that they were willing to that those two guys were willing to do that first of all that they yeah. trusted May enough to really give those performances rather than just wing it or not wing it but rather than just walk through it yeah. uh, or sleepwalk it and that it reads that it works like this is one of those things where the tone is so important and I think at the same time that's why people didn't get it because the tone is so precise that it's alienating. I mean, this is the studio of Ghostbusters. This was the studio yeah. of giant studio comedies in the 80s. And here is this tiny little misfit child of a movie that if you pay attention to it, it's pretty great, but it requires that initial investment. You have to trust it. And people just didn't know what to do. The, uh, I, just, I just found out the finances
1: on this so Beatty and Hoffman this is from Vanity Fair got mm-hmm. about five and a half million each okay. for acting in the picture Beatty got an additional half a million for producing and May a million dollars for her original script plus directing so she, she didn't get nearly as much oh, this right. added up to a nice piece of change that's, that's twelve and a half million just for the principals before a single frame of film went through the gate uh, it was also rumored that Beatty and Hoffman would get another five percent of the box office starting with the first dollar <laughs>
0: Which then would have been a big deal.
1: But yeah, absolutely. Now that's, just the, that's your standard Nicholson deal. Now. I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that would be, uh, this even says would be equivalent to like
0: what Tom Cruise or DiCaprio would get in today's dollars. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. And so now it's just out in the world 30 years later waiting to be rediscovered.
1: I really think that this one's going to grow. I mean, I feel like I've, I, I meet more and more people who know of it, who have heard of it, who want to see it. Because it's it's now come back around. Is yeah, it yeah. been like this unfairly maligned movie? Um, I, I mean, I'm a sucker for a lot of those. I, I could have I could have also done this podcast about you know I don't love it as much, but uh, I could have easily talked about Hudson Hawk. Mm. I'm a fan of someone
0: uh, will pick that. I'm sure.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I'm sure someone's going to do Heaven's Gate uh, or uh, Waterworld. I could I could I could talk mm. about Waterworld, well, but that- I don't. But none of none of those are are. I mean, I, I think I think again, I, I think this is one of the the. Great comedies of the '80s, yeah. and yeah, I probably I probably watch it like once or twice a year.
0: Yeah. Do you push it on people? Do you
1: absolutely? Oh yeah, especially when I know that people, uh, you know, are looking at the Blu-ray section because it's like, yo, <laughs> this is not even available on DVD. This is this is an exclusive. You know, this is what put your Blu-ray player to uh, to its fullest use. That's great. We have another we have another one uh, similar similar vein that uh, another turkey. Uh, in fact, the director once referred it to me as "At Long Last Turkey." Oh, uh, no. Peter, Peter Bogdanovich's uh, "At Long Last Love," uh, you know, a similar kind of thing was, was just just a total misfire at, at the box office. But you know, and it was and it was to be fair, uh, a really outmoded idea. This was like mid seventies. Yeah. Bogdanovich did a an ode to MGM musicals. Shot black and white in color, mm-hmm. meaning that it was like monochromatic, but it was a color film. So everything is, is, is black and white, yeah. uh, starring Burt Reynolds and Sybil Shepard, and was long lost for, for quite some time. And then yeah, Bogdanovich yeah. apparently, like, someone, someone saw a YouTube clip that was like recorded off of stars, <laughs> and he didn't even know this. And what happened was somebody who uh, worked for the studio had found his original notes. Because it came out in this kind of crippled release that it wasn't, it wasn't the cut he wanted, you know, and he just he just kind of wrote it off, and went back to his original notes and and put it and put it and s- stuck it back into the archive as the studio's official version, and he never knew. So once he found out, then they put out a special edition, but that's another one that only exists on Blu-ray. Yeah. There is no DVD of it.
0: Long Last Love. Such a strange place to be, where we've reached the point now where, and and I mean. Now that HDTVs are everywhere, it just makes sense. Of course, you'd, yeah. use, you'd use the matching format. But there's been so much resistance to, uh, to Blu-ray exclusives. Uh, I think it's yeah, I, think, it's well, I, I think just because physical media is changing. Yeah,
1: I, I think it has. I mean, I, you know, I'll say this. As a, as a, as a video store owner, of course, I have, a, I have a vested interest. in the And, you know, and I should say the video store, we do only carry dvd and blu-ray but it's the same way as we call it film even though so much of it is shot digitally these yeah. days I'm sorry, I, I switch over to picture and it's driving me insane picture yeah I no I, I think the only person who gets away with saying picture is martin scorsese <laughs> anybody else who says picture i kind of kind of roll my eyes uh, good picture no no unless you're scorsese yeah uh, you, you should you should just call it a, a film or a yeah. movie
0: um, movie, I use movie a lot too, but it is like my OCD is just to the point now where it's like, is it even? Can I call it a film if it's never passed through a gate? It's all, it was shot digitally, it was captured digitally, yeah, but it is right. That's what people yeah, call them, yeah. I and mean, that's what the filmmakers call them. We still call them filmmakers. We call it so, Kleenex
1: even if it's off brand. It's yeah, just it's yeah, just it's just how language works, I guess. Uh, but no, Blu-ray. I think some studios are starting to only put out movies. On Blu-ray, like Fox Searchlight, I can't believe they're doing this. I think they're really jumping the gun. Really, uh, Mistress America is only on Blu-ray. I thought it was. Cool. Uh, I didn't know that. Cavalry, Bell, I uh, Origins, only on Blu-ray. Huh. And I think they're really jumping the gun on that because even here in, you know, the the most expensive neighborhood in Brooklyn, I'd say I'd say less than twenty percent of my customers are using Blu-ray. It's it's really kind of amazing. I think a lot of people are even watching their DVDs on laptops.
0: Yeah, and so laptops,
1: uh, you know, make Blu-ray standard, which I don't. I don't see that happening because most of the companies have kind of sided, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I think some of them, it's a little hold hold back from uh, uh, blowback from the from the HD the DVD, days, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the HD uh, format wars at the, at the early start of Blu-ray, yeah. but I still yeah, have I, I,
0: I, HD DVD. <laughs> Cold dead hands. I mean, I also have the British Blu-ray, but but still. But I think,
1: uh, but I think, uh, you know, that is that is a factor. I think the collectors' market Blu-ray is certainly, uh, you know, taken the world by storm, and a lot of and a lot of companies are putting out just Blu-rays because maybe the studio already ha, you know already has the rights, maybe sure. there's an imprint or maybe not imprint uh, of of something, but the, you know there are companies like uh, I mentioned Shout Factory before. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Olive Films has done it. Uh, Twilight Time, they're, uh, oh, they're, course, they're yeah. one of my favorites, uh, and that's, uh... Twilight Time? Twilight Time, I, I think, is, is doing, doing, uh, the Lord's work. They're, yeah. they're putting out these special Blu-ray editions in, in, uh, you know, a limited edition of 3,000 yeah. copies each. And once it sells out, it's done, man. It's out of print. Do you want to get, uh... You want to get uh, De Palma's body double on Blu-ray? It's probably—I think that yeah. one went out of print no, sure. before uh, before *Street Date*.
0: I mean, yeah. I got all the—I've been buying their Truffauts, and *State of Grace* was one that I grabbed. Yeah, yeah Truffaut. Actually, be. I can—I can, can
1: bring this back to Ishtar. I think I have a is right behind you.
0: Yeah. What's that? Adalash is right behind you. Yeah. Three there it is. There
1: up. we go. Yeah. Still sealed. Yeah. *Twilight Time* with uh, starring, starring Ishtar's Isabella
0: Jani beautiful that was a time but it's uh, yeah it's it's great to see that there are still um, people within Sony I let, I guess we have to say that are willing to release it and willing to dredge up a director's cut uh, even if it is only marginally different yeah. and that there are places where you can find it but
1: I think the studios just need to get on board with what say Warner is doing the Warner Archive okay. I think they're the most forward thinking studio when it comes to home media uh those who don't know about it, Warner Archive has basically realized because physical media is uh, is you know dying, it's it's sad gasps that it's not cost effective to just make a run of you know thousand, two thousand, five thousand copies of a title from. You know, the 40s, 50s, 60s on through, you know, up to a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So things that have not been on DVD, they're just releasing as these made-to-order DVDRs, And they're no frills. They almost never have any bonus features. In fact, the cover art is usually, like, just a, a standard Warner Archive template with uh, with whatever the the poster art was back yep. in the day. And it makes sense. And now Warner is starting to get out the deepest cuts imaginable. Because if they just have to make them, you know, they don't. They, if they only make 200 copies of something, fine. They didn't. Uh, they didn't pre-make them. So yeah. as long as people are buying them, they can do it that way, and yeah. it's smart. And I wish more studios would do it. That's still the only place
0: you can get the Hudsucker proxy on Blu-ray, right? That's that was their release. It, oh, was it? Yeah, yeah, it's an archive release. Wolfen is one of them. The Hunger, uh, which I would imagine will now be in considerable demand. Yeah, I uh, think I think my copy of The Hunger here is, is like the out-of-print ones. Oh,
1: okay. Yeah. The Blu-ray. Uh, I don't have the Blu-ray. Just yeah. the uh, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that was like, that was coming was back around to doing
0: that again. Yeah. Sort of realizing, oh, we can still. Of course, there's a market for this. It's just not as big as the print a hundred thousand Blu-rays and leave them sitting in a Best Buy somewhere. Right. Sure. Yeah, and I'm I'm loving the fact that everyone sees the value, at least insofar as that I can get one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the world doesn't have to see the value. Just the people who have the content and the people who want it. Um, so yeah, Ishtar is a regular release now, but it still started as a weird little. But it's on
1: Blu-ray, and you yeah. can't you can't really get it any other way. I mean, and going going back to the kids today, you know, I'm sure I'm sure if there is you know a 19 year old out there who uh, who for some reason wants to watch Ishtar, I, I can't imagine a 19 year old today. Uh, going after it necessarily, but you know, they'll probably just uh probably just find like a like a torrent of it and yeah. you know, and it will probably not look that great if it's not from the from the Blu ray and you know, I I feel like there's a real lack of media literacy with uh with, with future generations and with noted exceptions. I mean I, I I really get excited when I see someone come in here, you know, under the age of uh twenty one who's who's into like cooler stuff than I was at their age that's what I would hope that I would have yeah, if, if I had broadband my entire life. That I would that I would be hungry and curious and try to see things that were that were outside my comfort zone and you know something that that I don't know about and I just don't feel like I see that today. It's really weird. Like I don't see teenagers coming into the shop that often. Every once in a while, I'll get a gaggle. You know, like on a Friday night, like right. that's what they've decided they're going to watch it's a an movie. Exotic thing it's an exotic thing, it. but for the most part, you know, video stores are. are there's a reason that they're they're like considered a relic. It's like it's like Netflix and iTunes killed the mom and pop video store. Hell, they killed Blockbuster. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I ended up doing an interview on NPR all about the death of Blockbuster, and I remember saying, "Good riddance," and I still think that because I think I think Blockbuster was pretty terrible for film culture because they would edit their movies in house without the permission of the artists or the studios. I mean, that's 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 inexcusable in my mind. But you know, they they kill all the video stores. But now they've realized that, wait a minute, our original content is way more popular than movies, yeah. and now no one can find these movies. So it's like the future was here, and it seemed like everything was going to be at our fingertips, and now more than ever I'm getting people signing up for memberships here because it makes sense. Now now it's gone back to, uh, I, I often compare it to, the other one I compare it to is like the Apple Watch. It's like the smartphone killed the wristwatch. And then Apple decided we're gonna make a wristwatch. I mean that that's it's the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard uh, to do all that in house. But yeah, I like something. I like that uh, that in this overly digital world uh, that that there are some people that are coming in here because it's it's kind of a, a analog tactile reaction to that. Yeah. You know, be able to pick up stuff and it's but just also it. to talk to people, talk to you know knowledgeable film people. All my all my staff here, you know, breathes. Film like I do, and uh, no no algorithm is going to, going to say, uh, is yeah. going to turn you on to Ishtar.
0: I'm sorry, it's yeah, just not going to happen. An algorithm can only tell you what you what it thinks you've already watched plus what it wants to sell you. It's yeah, never right. it's never a human connection. And nope. yeah, just flipping through uh, cases is something that. The, the, the repository aspect of, of a video store something that I, I miss terribly I mean we still have a few in Toronto and I get to go play there but yeah yeah it's just so great to see it somewhere else it's a culture you, you and what I realize. really like is
1: that it used to be there, there'd be competition between video stores but now that there are not that many yeah. left uh, video stores like now there's like solidarity uh, like it's funny like uh, yeah. like what are the big ones in Toronto uh, oh, Queen Video Queen Video. Video Bay Street Video fo- uh, follows follows us on Twitter Aww. and we follow them back and we we interact with each other uh, Scarecrow out and out yeah. in uh, Seattle Vidiots and Santa Monica yeah. I mean there's 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 some you know great stores out there not too many in New York unfortunately like yeah. there's there's on, there's only a couple that I would I would say like you know are really like fighting the same fight I am and it's, you know,
0: so weird to see them all gone. I know, like It's just, I know. It's a
1: different landscape. But what happens? What happens if, uh, you know, once once all of them go? Like, this isn't, you know, I don't think this store is going to be here forever either, but to, so, like, what's going to happen when people want to see things and it's just not available and it's not cost-effective to, to buy an out-of-print DVD... Yeah. you know alan rickman died i really wanted to I, I i had to look it up again i knew it was out of print but i i would love to get truly madly deeply on dvd and it's like sure for the low low price on amazon of uh nearly two hundred dollars seriously yeah it's it's, it's been out of print Christ. for a long time and it's and it's a beloved movie so yeah. the collector's market means that somebody can actually charge that and uh Somewhere, somewhere along the way, like somebody, uh, somebody will buy it just because it's it, that's the only way to get that. Mm, I'll
0: keep an eye out for a used copy if I ever see one. Yeah, please do. I mean, I have it, but <laughs> Jesus Christ, two hundred. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if anything gets a, a Blu-ray release, it's
1: it's a weird thing, man. Yeah, how right. how they and you never know like oh, what what's, what what goes on behind the scenes of like you know of rights issues and yeah. uh, you know, for example, uh, bring it back to Ishtar. It's like the studio there there was. Was not beloved by uh, no. by the studio, and it's kind of amazing that a Blu-ray even came out. You know, and you, mm-hmm. and you and you wonder like like wouldn't it just make more sense for everybody if to just make these things available? You know, maybe you do it in the like the, with the Warner Archive model of like maybe you don't spend any marketing dollars on it, but it just seems like bad business to yeah. try to. To try to
0: suppress something uh, over over something as silly as pride. Yeah, or you lease it out to someone else, a third party. Like Shout Factory has a great line on MGM stuff. That MGM last had the rights to Truly Madly. Maybe they don't know that they can do something with it. Yeah, I'll call Tom. Let's see what we can do. Yeah, but uh, yeah, and I've you've already more or less answered the the question of how Ishtar has influenced your own work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm uh, I'm I'm uh, essentially remaking Ishtar in <laughs> Panama. Uh, it's not, it's not, not, the same at all. But, uh, but the dynamic between between Hoffman and Beatty is is absolutely one of the one of the biggest influences uh, to the to the script. And, yeah, it's going to be uh, an odd project uh, that we'll hopefully be uh, be shooting later in 2016 with myself and
0: Noah Segan. That's fantastic. Oh, and he's a, he's the Hollywood guy. That's an he's a casting guy too. Uh, well, I look forward to that. And um, you have to open. So. Oh my goodness! It's three minutes to open. Yeah. This is how this works. People lose themselves in it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, thank you so much for this. It of course, was, uh, it was great. And uh, yeah, I mean, maybe that nineteen-year-old kid is in Brooklyn listening to this, and he can find his start here. Yeah, absolutely. Right. The cycle will continue.
1: And I'll have uh, working on getting the getting the the new wave of the podcast back. So DVD is the new vinyl. Yeah, um, look forward to that. Yeah, if if all goes according to plan, I think think the comeback will have Mariel Heller and. Uh, Play my
0: cards right, Jenny Slate. Is my oh, first two guests. She's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, I've uh, I interviewed her for Obvious Child a couple of years ago, which then became an episode, which then became. Uh,
1: I had a, I had a, one of my favorite podcast moments ever, and you know, podcasts are such a, such a weird thing because you you're you're eavesdropping on someone's conversation, mm-hmm. and sometimes I I listen to some and it and it feels like it doesn't. I feel like I, I'm not meant to hear the conversation. It feels a little too yeah. inside baseball. Uh, you know, it feels like it's it's not it's it's not remembering that like oh somebody is actually going to be listening to this this isn't just for us yeah and uh, one of my favorite moments uh, I, I got to be a part of was I had uh, Jason Schwartzman mm-hmm. talking about Obvious Child uh, for the podcast he was in town because he was working on uh, Mozart in the Jungle oh. and just happened to be staying around the corner and I thought we were going to be doing it over Skype. And he said, "You know, I'm really close to your store. Can we can we just do it there?" I was like, "Well, yeah, of course." Mm-hmm. So we did it in here. And I forgot to, uh, which which I did today. I forgot to turn off the ringer on the phone. And it was before we had opened. And you can listen to this on the uh, on on an older podcast. Yeah, uh, it's, I have. It's, it's, it's great. It's great. And uh, so this little old woman calls. Schwartzman picks up the phone, puts it on speakerphone, and uh, proceeds to have a conversation with her about how video stores work. Uh, how she can get rentals, and it, he had been in here for ten minutes, and <laughs> yeah. he he like knew what it took to like start a membership, and was just was just rattling it off, and then gets into a whole conversation about why renting is great, mm-hmm. and she's just like this little, like how does it, how does it how does it work? Yeah. Do you need a
0: credit card? Do you need a credit card?
1: Uh, no, that was terrific, and I, I love those, those those happy moments hearing a, hearing a live conversation.
0: Yeah, you're capturing something that maybe. We're not supposed to hear or maybe we wouldn't necessarily think we wanted to hear but sure it's great to listen in yeah yeah well thank you for that because it is a, a direct inspiration for this and thank you for this because yeah. now this is that you
1: bet thanks Norm.
0: no problem my thanks to aaron hillis and best of luck on his first feature in the meantime Check out his excellent ongoing podcast, DVD is the New Vinyl, wherever you find your shows. And if you should happen to be in New York, drop by Video Free Brooklyn sometime. They're on Smith Street, they're open from 2 to 10 every day, and you will almost certainly find something you never thought you'd see on disc again. Or you didn't even know was available in the first place. You can find Aaron on Twitter at CobbleHillis, all one word, two B's, two L's. And you can find his shop on Twitter at VF Brooklyn, all one word. The Director's Cut of Ishtar is available from Amazon on that Sony Pictures Blu-ray we mentioned, but since we recorded this episode, both the theatrical and director's cuts have become available for rental and purchase on iTunes. The Director's Cut is also available for sale on Google Play. And this is interesting. The Director's Cut is actually about three minutes shorter than the theatrical release. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, or on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be great. Uh, Try to get the phrase Blind Camel in there somewhere, just for funs. Thanks for listening.